go get it. Hello, and welcome to our podcast, Digging Deep. I'm Roberta Walker. And I'm Michael Glassman. We're two landscape designers. You know, we've been in the field for over 25 years. And do we have stories to tell you? In fact, we're going to tell you a lot of stories and hope, hopefully guide you to better gardening and better landscape designing. Right. And by telling you our stories, our good things and our bad things, and even our foibles, we can create some unique landscapes for you and your family. Yeah. You know, we didn't get to where we're at without making mistakes, but that's the nature of nature and gardening. So you might plant something and overwater it or underwater it, but you're going to learn from it. But we're here to hopefully give you the scoop before that happens. Right. And and I was talking to a little earlier before we started the podcast with Roberta about some of the frustrations when you design a new yard and they install a new yard. Sometimes, um, even though you instruct your clients and you tell them and you kind of give them a schedule of, of how to water, they need to follow the strict schedule. Otherwise, the plants don't thrive by themselves. They need a little bit of tender, loving care. They do, but there is an alternative. And what we have now for irrigation clocks are called smart clocks. I think we've mentioned them before. But if you are the type of person who really doesn't have time to adjust your clock uh, with the watering times and minutes according to the season, there are irrigation clocks that will do it for you. Yes, so, that's true. But you have to turn them on or forget to, get have to turn them on. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, um, I, a perfect example. Um, I went to see a job and, and you know the area. It's, it's a new section in Davis. It's called the cannery. And my clients couldn't understand you know, we were working on the front and I went to the backyard and they couldn't understand why a couple of their really nice trees, they went on vacation, just up and died. And it's like, we need to get replacements. But why all of a sudden would they die? Well, sure enough, you know, you look down there and, that, and there must have been uh, some sort of animal or varmint because they never checked it, that the drip irrigation, which had been um, staked down, was now no longer there. and so. These plants, they were gone for like two or three weeks. Didn't get any water. Yeah. And two or three weeks of no water, that would be a good reason why they died. And when I showed her, I said, oh, look, look at where the drip drip tube is. It's all the way down the hill. And look at this other drip tube. It's all the way around, around the corner. I said, um, and you'll notice there's nothing around the plant. Um, and she goes, oh, you think that that's what killed it? I said, well, that's a really good possibility since it didn't get any water. And when you put your finger in the soil, it's like the Mojave Desert. Like the desert. Well, if you're using a drip system, people don't understand this, but drip systems are highly pressurized. That's what makes the water come out of these little ends and drip at the flow rate. And um, you have to stake them down. They do sell these metal stakes. And right. other people say, well... I like sprinklers because you could see if something's wrong. Well, fair enough. However, you're using twice, three times, four times the amount of water, and you're watering even the seeds from birds that haven't germinated, and you're going to get weeds. So, you know, there's there's no perfect way, but drip is very efficient. But it does it does need careful uh, installation and checking once in a while. So, especially before you go away on a vacation. Exactly, and and that's the one thing, and also. In some of the areas, and that, and they face up to to um, the the fields where they get um, 
they get squirrels and ground squirrels and uh, possums and things like that. And one of the things that you have to be aware of is if you're in a uh, more not as urban an area where it's a little bit more natural, you are going to get animals that are going to dig into your system, that is going to are going to move drip systems, they're going to bite through pipes. Um, I see that happen a lot. And um, yeah, you know, there is a they're your wild neighbors. <laughs> exactly. And there's a wonderful thing about having nature, nature out in, in your backyard. But there's another thing, you know, it's like you have to expect that. I mean, and, and again, facing a field is wonderful, except when they're plowing it and all the dirt and the wind goes up and all the dirt is blowing back at your house also, in your patio. Also, when they plow, it moves the animals that live there, <clears throat> moles and voles and mice and rats, um, over to your area. But, you know, the the other family members, not even wild neighbors, are, are dogs. And um, I have clients who the dog has eaten every drip head around. It's it's a toy, a chew toy. And so yes. Yes. that yes. there is an alternative with drip irrigation. There are pop-up drip sprays. So, um, and there's there's below grade drip irrigation. So don't, don't, don't cancel it out because you think, Oh, my dog's going to eat it. There are ways to have a drip system where the dog will never know it's there except that when the is on. Yeah, that is true. So I, I, I took off a little bit. Now let's get back. We'll, go, we'll kind of go back to what we were talking about. Before. He digressed. <laughs> I digressed. I did digress. Okay. Well, last week we talked about, um, screening shrubs. What we're doing now is we're talking about the actual bones of a landscape and not the bones with the hardscape walls and fences and gates, but the screening bones. If you notice in magazines and you see these beautiful gardens, take your eyes away from the flowers and look in the background and you're going to see evergreen screening. And those are the plants that are there year round. And that's what we spoke about last week. Right. This right. Week, and those are, and those basically give you privacy. They give you a backdrop. Um, and I love that because yeah. again, there's nothing more discerning than having this beautiful garden with, uh, on, behind it, you see your neighbor or you see a chain link fence or you see, you know, motion. garbage stuff. <laughs> yeah. Motion lights. And so anyway, um, screening and shrubbery, those were the evergreens that we were talking about. And now we're going to go on and think of it, um, as steps. That's the tallest plant, and it would be the highest step. And now we're going to start to step down in plants to create depth. Even if you have a shallow yard, let's say your yard is only, heck, 15 feet deep. That's very shallow, especially if you have a patio. Let's say it's 20 feet deep. How are you going to create depth? You could do it by using plants. So you don't put these giant plants right in the front. Let them line the back. And now we're going to talk about... Well, let's talk about, Mike, let's talk about um, shrubs that don't get so big and um, that actually have flowers as well. I like that idea. For example, just throw one out. Um, there's a plant called Escalonia, and that gets four to six feet tall, and it has a beautiful pink flower, and it's an evergreen and shiny green leaves. Yeah, so, and that has um, a com- Escalonia compacta, so that's an evergreen that flowers. Also, right. um, we touched a little bit on cholestamon. Now, when when you, the common name of cholestamon is bottle brush, and when you say that, people go, "Oh, oh no, there's bees." But it has a young cousin called Little John, and they get three feet by three feet with beautiful bushy red flowers that do not get sticky and attach, you know, attract bees. And they're very pretty, and also 
for those of you that live in an area where you have friendly natives, they're deer tolerant. So the deer aren't going to mow them down to the ground. That's right. That's right. Another plant um, that also tolerates uh, wildlife um, are a huge variety of plants called cystus, which are rock roses. I love those. Those are beautiful. There's one that's the orchid spot, which has a white, it's a white petal. And then in the very center is this kind of spot of red. And that's why they call it orchid spot. And they're, they're spectacular. The big thing with them is they're drought tolerant. If you give them too much water, they'll literally shrivel up and die. Yeah, they will. But there's also, so the flower is almost like a poppy flower. It's, it's fine and papery and, and comes out in the spring. There's also the cystus purpurea that has a purple flower with the dark pink spots. And yep. cystus comes in different levels too. You could use them as hedges that get to three or four feet or ground covers. Speaking of poppy-like flower, one of my clients asked me about it. There's something called the Romneo Colteri or the Matillaha poppy. I call them, I, I call them um, fried eggplants. Yes, those are spectacular. <laughs> they have this big, gigantic, crepe-like poppy, white flower with a yellow center. It and they just like are, an egg. <laughs> yep, like, an, like a fried egg. Yeah, and they are overly dramatic. They're dramatic, and but they're very big. So again, if you have a shallow yard, this is something that's overwhelming. It could get pretty big, five, five feet, yep. five feet. So, but it is wonderful. It's another drought-tolerant one. Um, another shrub that behaves itself so well is called Corea. It's an Australian fuchsia. It's evergreen. And the different varieties have these little little bells. They're almost like succulents, and the hummingbirds love them. They come in pink and coral. Have you ever used that, Michael, Corea? Ooh, and I, I, um, not as often as I would like to, but they're beautiful. And again, they do attract hummingbirds, as is um, some of the kufias. There's one called Vermilion, um, which is not as tall, but it has an, a tube-shaped orange flower. Um, and, oh, my God, the hummingbirds just go crazy over it. They go crazy, but the plant goes crazy, too. So I <laughs> I had that, and that plant just took, o- took off and took over. So it's beautiful, but um, it's one of those ones that you have to keep, you know, keep in check. Because right. uh, what I just, I, to be honest with you, I planted it, and I love it because of the orange. Mm-hmm. Um, but like uh, uh, during the year, I'll cut it back and then let it start all over again. But it's, I mean, in a back, in, for a background, if you want the orange color, it's just pretty spectacular. It, it's beautiful. And the foliage is beautiful as well. A different type of um, kufia is the Mexican heather. You've used that. And that's oh, little, the little purple flowers. Yeah. The little yeah. purple flower. I love those. And it used to be when it got very cold here, they would die in the winter. And anyone back east, this is not the plant for you because um, it can't tolerate cold. We have, with global warming and climate change, our winters are not getting as cold. And they are, they're thriving all the way through the winter. They're flying. So um, that's, that's a nice one. Also, Tibuchina. Have you ever used that? That's princess. I- Love that. It's the velvet plant or, yes, as you said, the princess flower. That has got the most spectacular, if you like purple, which I happen to, um, the flower is, I mean, it's radiates color. It's that beautiful purple. Stunning. Imagine going into a a lounge uh, or, or a bordella and they have deep purple velvet cushions everywhere. That's the plant. That's the plant. And <laughs> the leaves, they call it a velvet plant because the leaves literally, when you touch them, they feel like velvet. It's beautiful. They grow 
I may, I mean, they do grow in Sacramento and they do well, but I'll tell you in the Bay Area, especially Marin County, they can get 10 feet tall. In fact, oh, my in-laws have, have one that's 10 feet and it's amazing. Absolutely. They could become trees. Mine is um, the size of a tree and I used to try to cover it. Now I don't even bother. I don't have to, but um, it's one of those, uh, those plants that in Hawaii uh, it's invasive. So not here, but um, it is, was a tropical plant, but it's, uh, it does well um, if you're in a temperate climate or, you know, we're on the North coast, but if you're anywhere where it snows, forget about it. You'll have to put it in a greenhouse if you want to grow it. Okay. And speaking of that, um, have you tried, I mean, I love, again, for something interesting, um, Brugmansia or Detura, it's the angel trumpet. Literally, yeah. the flowers are the size of a trumpet. It is, and they come in a yellow, they come in a coral, they come in a white. They're like to die for. They're beautiful. And again, temperate climate. In the Bay Area, they're stunning. There's blossoms all over it. I've, I've had one for many years. I've also lost many because it used to get really cold. And um, you, they do need protection. And if you do grow them, if you're in a temperate or, you know, northern California where it does get cold, if you put them on the south side in a place that'll get some protection, you know, from the wind, you can make it happen. But they are gorgeous. Angel trumpet. And its cousin, who is the native one, uh, the Daytura, that has the white flower. And if you've ever looked at Giorgio O'Keefe's paintings, there's one white, huge canvas, and you're looking right in the middle of the flower, that's Daytura. Right. And those are spectacular. And what's funny is they seem to grow, they grow, but they a lot of them bloom around Thanksgiving, which is surprising to me. I had one in my old house. I had a yellow one. And right around Thanksgiving is when it, it, it set all its blossoms. I kept thinking it was going to do it in the summer, in the summer, in the summer, but it waited and, and it may have just been the plant. It waited till around Thanksgiving time and, and it had probably a hundred blooms. It was just, it was, it was tall. It was beautiful. And what I would do is in the, um, in the winter, I'd cut it back. And then if, if we got really, really uh, cold and it was, it was on the Southern exposure, I would put like a, a little sleeve over it to protect it. Yeah, um, that plant, along with oleander, um, the native um, variety of angel trumpet or datura is highly toxic. So um, a lot of people try to stay away because they have children or puppies. And, and um, that plant is uh, the seeds are lethal. <laughs> so, right. Well, supposedly, it, and I don't know because I don't use it, but supposedly it causes um, if you if you ingest it, it it's a hallucinogenic. Genic, uh, it causes hallucinations. Yes. Right. It's a type of hallucination that could send you into another world without return. So, yeah, right. Have a nice time going out, but <laughs> you're not coming back. Um, another one that's great, you know, for flowers and middle, middle of the road in terms of height, uh, the budley is the butterfly bushes. Butterfly bushes are great. They're deciduous and they finally come in different sizes now. It used to be that. You could only get one size and it gets about 12 feet and all the blossoms would be on the top. Right. And now they have dwarf varieties, the lo and behold, that's six feet. And even when it gets two feet and they're wonderful and they're called butterfly bushes because, tell them. They attract humming, uh, hummingbirds, but butterflies. Butterfly. Monarch butterflies are drawn to them um, like crazy. I mean, you, your, your butterfly bush will be covered with monarchs. Yeah, they, they have a funny little smell. Um, but anyway, they're lovely, and they're also lovely cutting flowers. So 
um, have at it. They are deciduous, so they're going to lose their leaves. Um, but they're, as a, as Roberta said, they're beautiful. I mean, I love them. I've got some of the buzz, the, the new buzz varieties, which Max added about three feet. And they're really, really pretty because if you cut off the old blossoms, they'll just keep setting new blooms and new blooms and new blooms. Pretty amazing. They will. If you have a drought tolerant garden and um, you want something that blooms and attracts birds and butterflies, another fabulous plant is the California fuchsia, which is called Zauchinaria. Yes. And that too has beautiful tubular orange red flowers. And I'm telling you, the only problem I see is they're low growing. And so it drives me crazy because I have cats. So I always want to make sure that uh, there's no cats around because the hummingbirds love them. Right, right. Yeah. And, you know, and, and that's a really good one. And, you know, I think we talked about it several shows before, but um, the salvias. Um, some of the salvias are just like the killer cranberry and the colitis. They're just, they're beautiful. There are over 60 varieties of salvias. And salvias, the whole family is the sage family. So um, there's sage from culinary sage to sage that grows wild in the desert to beautiful varieties of um, perennial plants that, that grow here. And they're so hardy. I'm not sure about back east, though. I don't know if they would come back after a freeze. They might. Um, that's something I think you'd actually think um, back east treat them almost like annuals. Like, yeah. for example, the Santa Barbara salvia and the blue salvia and the purple one. I, I just I would recommend to people, if, if those of you who are listening and you live back east, I treat them like an annual. Yeah, I have one I planted 17 years ago called Salvia Hot Lips, and I put in a one gallon, and that Salvia Hot Lips is probably seven feet wide by three feet high, and it's the last to keep blooming and the first to start blooming in the spring, and um, it's been in, like I said, for at least 17 years, maybe 18 years, and that plant is still going. It's just such a great foundation plant that blooms. What color are the blooms? Well, hot lips are red blooms, but some of the flowers have white and red. But the the very end of the petal almost looks like you purse your lip to kiss someone. That's uh, uh, like. okay. that's why it's called hot lips. Hot <laughs> lips, yeah. And um, you know, it's a deciduous shrub, but uh, and it can get to be um, pretty tall. But I will tell you, the Rose of Sharon, the um, they call it hibiscus syriacus. Those are beautiful. I mean. Um, between that, there's one that's a purplish blue to, again, very much similar to the cystus in terms of the flower. There's a uh, white one with a with a, a, a dot of red in it. Um, but those will survive even back east. My sister used to live in Wisconsin, and we planted several of those. And they lose their leaves, but they weather through the snow. And in the spring, they bloom like crazy. Yes. I had a client whose mother planted one over 50 years ago. It's still going. And um, it's one of those Victorian type plants that um, the Rose of Sharon that's been around. Yes. That, you know, another Victorian that's absolutely stunning that's about to bloom are the heliotropes. Yes. I love those. Those are gorgeous. And so, um, you know, what's important, we're talking about plants, but it's really important if you if you stick with certain plants in your garden, consider stepping out into the realm of um, other plants and other colors that you can mix. So right now the heliotropes are just coming into bloom. Everything else is finishing. So if you want to have not just chrysanthemums, there are plants that are just starting to bloom and heliotrope is one of them. 
And you know, it's interesting as you had mentioned that they're they're uh, historic plants or old plants. Sometimes going back and seeing, you know, the old saying, everything that's old is new again, and everything that's new becomes old again. Some of the old historic plants, as you research them, and you look and you look at pictures, they're becoming in vogue again. They're becoming very, very popular. And they you they may have been used 50, 100 years ago, but don't throw them away in terms of not using them because it's amazing um, why they used them before and why they're going to why you should use them again. Um, they're surefire bloomers or surefire plants. It's like roses, you know, yeah. roses are test, do the test of time. They do. Um, and here's a perfect example of an old flower that kind of went out of vogue, carnations. Now, carnations come from a very large family as well, the sweet williams. And they're, um, the, the sweet williams and the other carnations, which are all under the name of dianthus, they're um, called biannuals, which right. means they'll bloom. Then their seeds you know, scatter around them and then they might skip a year, maybe not, and then bloom again. But once you plant them, and that's a Victorian flower as well, the uh, sweet williams, the carnations, and the heavenly spicy scent of carnations is fabulous. They make great cut flowers. And once you plant them, they'll be there year after year after year. And that that's something you don't really see in the nurseries anymore, do you, Michael? Uh, carnations. You might see some ground cover dianthus, but not Rarely a lot. Rarely do you see them. And it's funny because um, and it, it's not an aversion, but but I don't use them. I haven't used them a lot, and mainly because you know you talk about um, things that that kind of promote your history or or you think about my mom's favorite plant when she was alive um, and we were growing up were were camellias. She loved camellias, and she'd always tell my dad, you know, that's my favorite flower. That's my favorite flower. One of the flowers that she didn't like was carnations. He didn't know one flower from another. So for her birthday, he would always buy her bouquets of carnations and thinking that this is what she really likes. And every year, you know, she'd thank him, but she'd tell him, it's not carnations. I love camellias. And every year he'd get her carnations. And it's, and she actually, you know, she went, years later, she admitted, I hate carnations. She goes, yeah. your father always brings them to me. So it's, it's kind of funny. The minute I think of carnations, I think of my father and my mother always getting them com- Confused. Yeah. Well, I think of it as a guy thing. Are you listening? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and, and when we speak, uh, and and I just mentioned one that's also it's an old plant. It's surefire Sacramento. That's where we we do a lot of business. Um, it's called the city flower. Is camellias. Camellias for a shaded environment, uh, morning sun, afternoon shade, are amazing in terms of the different varieties and the flowers and the colors. They are. They actually, Sacramento used to be called Camellia City um, a long time ago. So we have a plethora of them. Um, along with uh, flowering shrubs like camellias, uh, we have rhododendrons and azaleas. It's actually ca- part of the same family. But again, for shade, those are wonderful. Azaleas, camellias, gardenias, hydrangeas. These are shade plants that, um, that bloom. And so um, I know back east, azaleas do great, rhododendrons do great, and I'm Absolutely. not sure about camellias. I'm sure camellias probably do well as well. Um, uh, they're having, because they're an evergreen, I know that I, you know, I had done some work back east. Um, the camellias don't survive the frost oh, they don't, or the snow. The azaleas do, but especially the rhododendrons. And, um, and it's funny because some of them do, some of the, Shady plants do really well, like Japanese maples. We talked oh, yeah. about that last week. 
mm-hmm. they they'll survive beautifully in the snow. Oh yeah, they're in Japan. It, it snows there. Um, but rhododendrons, um, of you know, back east, they're some of the most beautiful, you know, beautiful rhododendron forests and whatnot. So um, we actually have a harder time with them here because it's so darn warm most of the time. Yes. Yes. Azaleas do really well. And for those of you that, that want it, want something that's going to give you a lot of color in the shade, there's a new variety. It's called Bloomathon. Normally, azaleas bloom once a year, which is spring. Now the new hybrids are blooming three times a year, spring, summer, and fall. So instead of just getting one shock of color in the spring, now you can get it for three seasons. Right. I just planted uh, four white bloomathons that were blooming um at a client's yesterday so uh that's wonderful and then you know there's two other shrubs that um they are deciduous but they are such great summer flowering plants which are plumbago and lantana oh i love those i yeah. love those Paige, i mean lantana is, lantana is funny because uh there are so many different varieties. They're native to uh, Australia, and um, and par- some of them are also native to South Africa. But you can get ground cover lantanas, the monovidensis, uh, which is purple. You can get a yellow ground cover lantana. And then, of course, you've got right. the plethora of color. Yeah, the festival, which is oranges and reds. And, oh, my God, lantana is spectacular and it's so versatile so a combination that i love is let's say i'll do a mound and i'll plant a lantana now lantanas the orange yellow ones they could get four feet by four feet there so don't don't plant them right next to the next one but if you have lantana and then on the top of the mound of variegated yucca that only get three yes. feet high stunning if you have a cobble stream at the base of your mound and you put some red hot pokers in Beautiful on the mound with that yellow color and the orange color, um, a red Barbary, the orange rocket. These are, and then the lomandras, the grasses. So just even if you have a little area, you could create art, art. And again, mixing colors. Roberta was talking about that mixing different shades and colors, um, grays and greens, and then flowers. Um, if you have gray and green for your backdrop and then in the front you have these bright colors, they'll just pop. They'll just show off. They're just, they're fabulous. So um, the red hot pokers, those are nipophia. And then um, another Australian plant that I've been using quite a bit are the kangaroo paws, the anagazanthus. Whenever I say yes, anagazanthus, it's like someone sneezed. Anagazanthus. <laughs> anyway. My only, pr- I have to say my experience with them is the the dwarf ones, some of the hybrid dwarf ones of the kangaroo paw, for me don't, don't do well. But no, the no, big I ones, use the big ones. I use the big reds. Yes, the red ones, the yellow ones, even the the orange ones are just thriving. In fact, um, some of the yellow ones are like spectacular. I've tried the hybrid ones, the little dwarf ones, and for some reason they just don't do well. You know, I found the same thing that happened with the red hot pokers, the nitphobia. The the little yeah. dwarf ones are just they just don't do much where the um, the regular red hot pokers are, are wonderful. Isn't that funny? I found the same thing. It's like you'd think, okay, the, the hybrid ones, I found the same thing. The little hybrid red hot pokers, they all rotted out. They all did terrible. Mm-hmm. Whereas the big ones, thriving. They thrive and they, fr- they thrive on very little water. And if you do give them water, they thrive. They just thrive. So 
Um, speaking of, okay, so so other plants that flower that are wonderful, let's talk about lavender and santalina and lamb's ear. These are silver plants, artemisia. Um, the artemisia doesn't flower, but the lavender sure do. So um, yeah, Absolutely. But again, this I will tell you my experience with lavender, depending on what you plant, is initially when you plant it, you have to give it water to be able to establish a root system. But then you've got to cut it back because you give it too much water, they die. They do not like to be constantly soaked. Otherwise, they literally turn brown and they're gone. Yeah, they don't. They also don't like transplanting. But here, here's the problem that most people um, fail with lavender is that the lavender gets big and it's beautiful and blooms and they don't cut it back. And if you don't cut lavender back, it gets heavy and it's just split down the middle. So right um, and very very ugly and woody. I agree. Yeah, yeah. So don't be afraid to trim your lavender. I mean, lavender it has so many uses. So right after it's bloomed, shear off all the blooms to get down to a nice little brown ball. Take the blooms and hang them upside down and dry them. And then you've got lavender to scent your drawers. You could take the seeds and make little gauze packets to have in your dryer for scented dry. I mean, lavender is an herb that could be used, but you must prune it. I agree. I agree. There are some new varieties, again, that are that stay smaller. Super blue is one of them. Thumbelina lavender doesn't get any taller than, say, 8 to 12 inches. Um, but again, what my experience has been, um, some of the hybrids are not as hardy as some of the the, the, the old-fashioned plants, you know, the lavenders and the old-fashioned Provence or the the um, the Spanish lavender. Um, so I'm not saying don't use the hybrids. I love the hybrids, but be careful with them because sometimes you'll try them and they just don't thrive. Yeah, if you want a smaller growing um, lavender, look for the hid coats. Those are naturally smaller. And um, I tend not to plant the Spanish lavender because they just get too big, too quick, and split open and get woody. I don't, I don't even like them. But anyway. The only thing that's nice about the Spanish lavender, and I agree with you, and I, I basically haven't used it in, in years, is the the purple flower color is just spectacular. I mean, they really are something to, to be behold. I love those. But yeah. uh, but you're right. I mean, the Provence lavender and the Hidcote uh, English lavender is just, it's they're beautiful. They're incredible. They're beautiful. And, you know, nature is nature, so... Anytime you plant something, it's going to take, you know, a little bit of trimming now and then. But that could be a pleasurable thing and also a way to, you know, kind of blow off steam. Go out there and let your um, let that OCD part of you trim away. <laughs> and I have to say Santalina is um, I love it when it doesn't bloom. I mean, the bloom's interesting. Santalina, lavender cotton. It's a little silver gray. Um, and it's beautiful. I mean, it's really nice accent. Um, you can alternate it. They also have a green one. So you can do the green one and the gray one alternating to create a really neat effect. When they flower, they have kind of like a button, um, a yellow button or a cream colored button. I'm not a big fan of the flower, but I love the shrub. Yeah, they'll flower and then they kind of lay down and it looks kind of messy. But Santalina's, um, the green and the silver, and the lavenders, these are things and a boxwood that you could do, uh, you can make knot gardens out of. So, but if yes, you keep, yes. yeah, if you keep them trimmed, because they are evergreen, um, there's a fabulous, fabulous knot garden at Filoli, which is in the um, Stanford Palo Alto area. 
Filoli Gardens is a public garden. If you've never been to that garden and you live in California, it's in Woodside, California. Uh, the man that started PG&E and Empire Mines um, built, a, built a home with fabulous gardens that you could walk through. And there's a huge knot garden made of Santalinas and Barberies and the silvers and the purples. It's just stunning. Have you ever been there, Michael? Oh, I have several times. In fact, yeah. I took a, uh, my wife um, when we were dating. I took her and she loved it. What is one time in springtime, besides the azaleas and the rhododendrons, they have wisteria. They've got a beautiful brick mansion and they've got the wisteria climbing up the side of the building. And when it's in full bloom, you have this gorgeous brick building. I mean, beautiful brick building, totally draped in purple wisteria. That is, you drive up and you just see it and your your mouth goes just yeah. open. It's unbelievable. It's I love Philoli is one of my favorite places. Yeah. The gardens are very, very English. And if you, you know, wander all the way up, they have uh, tons of espaliered fruits and um, pleached trees. It's it's really beautiful. They have a little cafe there. So uh, anyway, if you get a chance, that's, that's a garden to, to get to. Well, you know, we still have so many plants to cover, but maybe next week we'll do the really fun ones, the perennial colors, you know, the the ones that looks, you know, like eye candy when you go to the to the nursery. That would be great. And we can also touch on some ground covers. Ground cover. We're going to talk about perennials and ground covers and succulents and vines and all kinds of things, because that's what we do. And that's what we want to bring to you. Painting with plants. Painting with plants, yes. Well, I'm Roberta Walker. I'm Michael Glassman. And we are... Deep. 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 Thank you. 